Hello, listeners, and welcome to The Third Wheel, Herbert Smith Freyhill's podcast for all things ESG in Australia. I'm Tim Stutt, partner in our Sydney office and Australian lead for ESG, and I'm joined by Mel Debenham in our Perth office, partner in our environmental team and ESG co-conspirator. There's clearly been quite a bit happening on the climate front in Australia over the past couple of weeks, so Mel and I are very excited to be joined today by a very well-credentialed third wheel to talk about energy transition. We're joined by Dr Cameron Kelly, who heads up the Legal Governance and Secretariat team at the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA. Prior to joining ARENA, though, Cameron was in-house counsel for a major renewable energy sponsor in the Middle East, where he advised on several hundred megawatts of project-financed onshore wind and solar PV projects across Jordan, Egypt and Turkey. He also practised in international carbon markets and has a PhD from the University of East Finland from their Centre of Climate Change, Energy and Environmental Law. So very on topic. Cameron, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure, Tim. We typically like to start each of these episodes with a bit of a personal reflection about what ESG means to you. Um, so please, please enlighten us. Sure. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. Thanks for the intro. Um, so, yeah, um, pleasure to, to be involved in this little discussion today. Um, ESG just seems to become more and more prominent for so many of us in so much of what we do. Um, sort of coincidentally, my I came to the law quite late. Um, I, I had a career in the environmental science, environmental impact space for many, many years, sort of all through my 20s before I got to the law. So um, I remember back in those days trying to grapple with the idea of how do we sort of... <clears throat> you know, quantify or, dare I say, place a value or a price on, you know, the inherently unquantifiable, namely so many, you know, aspects of the environment, such as biodiversity, greenhouse gas pollution, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, large sort of infrastructure projects have been forced to, to address as part of that sort of overall environmental impact assessment process. And so I think, you know, I, I'm happy to say that I think we've, we've come a long way since all that time sort of 20-odd years ago. Um, such that now ESG is is front and centre and locked into to really the the overall you know let's call it the impact assessment process for any sort of proposed initiative or project or venture um, and it's not just you know the E in the environment but it's also very much the S in the social and the G in the governance I mean here at Arena the, the governance is, is is it's it's a huge issue I mean we're we're in the business of of allocating. Um, taxpayer-funded, you know, money to to eligible projects, and so we're we're constantly scrutinised to ensure that what we're doing is truly and you know ultimately really good value for money. Not only in terms of um, you know the, the the relevant sort of legislation, which is this um, public governance and reporting legislation that Arena as a as a corporate Commonwealth entity has to um, hold itself to, but but also you know, in, in terms of the types of projects and the technologies that we are seen to be funding, I mean, they're, they're inevitably in the limelight. And so, you know, we, we're, it, it's something that, I guess, particularly in my role, it's something that um, I'm, I'm, I'm asked to comment on and to, I guess, provide sort of a, a range of assurances on, on a continual basis. So I think that's, that's all a good thing, um, but it's only going to get, it's only going to get bigger and bigger. 
as as a as a governance specialist, a lot of that was music to my ears, Cameron. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, I had eighteen months as an erstwhile value investor as well. So so yeah. so from that perspective, it's also a tick tick tick. Yeah, great. I think um, most of our listeners, or at least a, a good proportion of our list listeners, will be very familiar with Arena. But for those who aren't, can you tell us a little bit about the organisation? Its reason for being. Sure, sure. Thanks, Tim. So. I, I mean, Arena's been around for a long time, right? So it was set up under the Gillard government back in 2011-12. So we've been around now for coming up to a decade. Um, there's one or two people left at Arena who have still been around since then, um, but, you know, it's it's not many. So we're a small agency. We're, we're sort of less than, just less than 100 people. Um, we have this thing called um, an investment plan. So the investment plan gets updated sort of generally every year, and so we've just gone through a, uh, a recent update to the investment plan. And so it's, it's, I guess it's good to talk to that because that really is the blueprint for what we are looking to sort of fund over the next 12 to 24 months. So, and, and of course, that, that all follows on from this extra allocation of budget. So we had a, I think it's a, about a $1.62 billion allocation of funding as part of the budget last year. So that's that's great. So we've got we've got a clear funding pathway for the next decade or so. Um, right up until that, we were never sure whether we would get any funding at all. To be quite frank, and we were we were down to our our last dollar coin effectively in the piggy bank. So thank goodness that did not transpire. But of course now you know the the attention turns to what are we funding and are those projects appropriate. So we did a really successful range of large-scale solar projects back in 2015, 16, 17. Um, I think your firm was was heavily involved in supporting us on some of those projects, and they were great. And the, the good news is, Tim, that, you know, large-scale solar is now commercial in Australia. Um, it doesn't need government support, so we, we won't fund large-scale solar PV projects. But what we really want to turn our attention to now is you know those nascent sort of technologies that are still coming up the commercialization curve so that's that's all about renewable hydrogen it's all about um, you know integrating more and more renewables into the grid so large-scale batteries um, storage and all of its technologies pumped hydro is another big one we just closed a very large um, janx pumped hydro project up in um, in far north queensland um, at a disused uh, gold mining site um, we're looking at um, low emissions metals, you know, that has historically been a, a notoriously difficult sector to abate carbon from. Um, but the technology and, and importantly, the interest is is there to do it now. Um, and so we're we're looking at a number of opportunities in the um, in the green steel and in the green aluminium space. Um, yeah, and 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 also we've got the regulation, obviously, uh, which has come out quite recently, not without its um, controversy, controversies, let's say. Uh, but at the moment, the regulation, um, which came out uh, just in July, uh, does give us the power to to look at carbon capture and storage and soil carbon. So plenty to to keep us busy, Tim. You're spoilt for choice, I suspect, Tim. <laughs> and you mentioned renewable hydrogen certainly um, it is in the limelight at present and it's extraordinary to see the step change in interest and enthusiasm for hydrogen over a reasonably short period of time. Um, I've been to a number of sellout events in Perth, um, Cedar and the Energy Club, and the number of people in the room alone I think indicates the level of interest around hydrogen here. 
So um, while the importance of green hydrogen in Australia's decarbonised future, I think, is now widely accepted, certainly challenges remain, um, technical, commercial, but also in the regulatory space, where uncertainty within domestic and international regimes may be hindering development, along with definitional issues. Um, there are all the, the colours of the hydrogen rainbow to grapple with. Um, do you think that Australia's clean hydrogen certification scheme, the hydrogen guarantee of original scheme for Australia, will provide certainty? Um, and also, do you reckon Australia can emerge as a global hydrogen superpower? Yeah, th thanks, Mel. They're good questions. Um, so, I mean, to your first question, hopefully that's a bit easier than the second question. Um, yeah. So, yeah, look, I think there's still a lot of work to go with this um, certification of origin scheme. It's still very, very early days. You, we, we, you know, the, the, the government only released the discussion paper, I think, back in July of this year. So um, there's still a lot of work to go there. Um, I know that the government has had a, a close eye on what the Europeans are doing with the, um, the equivalent scheme in Europe, which I think is coincidentally very good. Um, as far as I'm aware, with the, the current framework of our... Uh, guarantee of origin scheme. Um, you're, what it's seeking to do is to, you know, effectively measure, trace, and certify um, the carbon footprint of a hydrogen product. And I think it's it's important to bear in mind that hydrogen products can come from many many different pathways. Um, you know, you, you mentioned all of all of the colours there, and and um, it's. It's, you know, let, let, let's take the politics out of it. Um, hydrogen can be, be produced from many, many different ways. And so I think, you know, whilst we work up the framework of a guarantee of, of origin scheme, we need to, I think the scheme really needs to look at all the different hydrogen production pathways, um, you know, including what is the primary fuel source, whether it's renewables or whether it's, you know, a form of fossil fuel, whether it's gas or coal. Um, then you look at the carbon emissions, and, and I think the, the scheme will need to definitely look at scope one and two, but query whether scope three is, is is feasible, and then obviously look at the production location. So I think if the scheme verifies and sort of tracks those three attributes, then you know I think it's got a reasonable chance of doing its its job. Um, I think if we just sort of try and narrow it down to the Australian context. Um, and particularly what we at Arena are looking at, you know, it's 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 all about renewable hydrogen. So that obviously involves electrolysis, so the application of electric of an electric current to water to split off hydrogen and, and oxygen. So the scheme needs to definitely look at that, and so that obviously produces hydrogen with with no carbon footprint at all. Um, then you have something like you know coal gasification um, with carbon capture and storage. So that obviously has a footprint. Um, and then you have this other process, which, uh, you know, the technology is well known, steam, um, methane reforming, um, SMR with natural gas, again with CCS. The technology is well known, but th those two uh, fossil fuel processes are obviously entirely different. Um, and so they, they, they have carbon footprints. So, yeah, I think as long as we're all clear that hydrogen can be produced by different pathways uh, with different carbon footprints and the, 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 the guarantee of origin scheme sort of adequately addresses all of that, then, you know, I think the scheme should, should serve its purpose well. Um, going to your second point, um, yes, I, I thought it was going to be a difficult 
difficult question, but absolutely we can we can be a hydrogen superpower. I mean, I can't think of I can't think of any other country in the world, to be quite frank, that has the same abundance of renewable energy resources, namely good solid, you know, solar PV and 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 onshore and soon to be offshore wind potential as we do here in Australia. Um, so let's take advantage of that. Let's use those resources um, and bring down, continue to bring down the cost curve of those those sorts of um, renewable energy technologies, so that we can produce um, green hydrogen cheaper and cheaper, and we get to that magic target of two dollars under a kilo, or even better. It's great to hear um, your enthusiasm, and and certainly I don't think you're alone in seeing the potential for Australia um, to to be a leader in this space globally. Um, so hydrogen, I think, is looking firmly like a technology for the here and the now. Are there any opportunities just over the horizon you think will or perhaps should generate the same level of interest as what we've seen in terms of hydrogen? Yeah, look, I, I think there are, Mel. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're always... We're, we're a bit like a frustrated teenager. We're always looking for the next best shiny thing, right, at Arena? Um, so we think that some of the next best shiny things on the horizon for us, apart from renewable hydrogen, is, I mean, we're already working in this space, It's but it's unquestionably storage, the whole storage piece and all of the technologies that contribute to the storage solution for an increasing share of, um, um, you know, intermittent renewables. And I, I don't just mean sort of large-scale pumped hydro projects, but, you know, particularly the big battery space. So, you know, we, it, it seems like old news now, but we we worked on South Australia's big battery and then we increased its size. Uh, but since then, there are literally dozens of large-scale batteries uh, projects all over the country. It's We think it's entirely plausible that, um, you know, that the, the large-scale battery space will will experience a cost decline similar to large-scale solar, and that's that's great because it means that the grid is 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 has a greater ability to take on more and more renewables. I think one of the pieces that we're focusing on in the, on the big batteries is so-called grid-forming batteries as opposed to grid-following. So a lot of the work historically has been sort of grid-following batteries, um, which, you know, have their place. But I think what's really interesting for ARENA now is the the advent of these so-called sort of synthetic or grid forming batteries that have the ability to contribute to the you know the system strength and the inertia um, issues that the grid is suffering from um, in and of themselves rather than following from on from from other assets and so I think that's that's a really exciting and interesting space. Um, I mentioned offshore wind. Offshore wind is it's literally just around the corner. So I think the bill was you'd know this more than me. But I think the bill came out last month. Yeah, that, that's right. We're getting close now. Yeah, so that look, that's that's great. Um, I, I don't know to what extent if, if if any arena will be involved in that space, to be honest, but it's certainly one to keep in mind. And then the other one I think that's interesting is this, um, you know, the CSP concentrated solar thermal. There's a lot of really interesting work going on in the CSP space. I mean, historically, it that that has been a technology which has been really expensive. There's no question of it. But the more we can get sort of qualified proposals and ideas to us and the more we can closely look at them. I mean, we're, we're doing work with one project proponent who has stayed the course with us now for a long, long period of time. And it's really all about getting the cost curve down with a, um, you know, a, the, the storage medium in this case is a superheated 
uh, pool of sodium, uh, salt. Um, but when you superheat sodium, it has all sorts of attractive properties in terms of being able to discharge uh, for very long extended periods of time. So, you know, you come up with a re renewable energy source there that is effectively dispatchable. So, yeah, we're looking at that as well. Cameron, renewable energy naysayers often cite efficiency and reliability of supply as um, significant blockers. And from that perspective, it was really interesting to see ARENA announce funding for the Australian energy market operator for developing cloud-based connection simulation tools, um, which my understanding is the aim is that they will enable more efficient evaluation of new grid connections. This is something which um, will no doubt be a big help to some of our corporate clients as they're developing large-scale developments. Um, do you have any practical tips or opportunities to collaborate with industry that you can share? Yeah, Tim, um, good, good, good observations there. Look, I, I think, you know, I mean, uh, apart from trying to continually engage with the render and keeping a, keeping abreast of what's going on in terms of our project pipeline, which we, you know, advertise regularly on the website, um, you know, I, I, we, we've got very uh, long and detailed MOUs with all of the, the the energy market bodies. So we've got an MOU with the AMC, one with um, the, the regulator, and then one with with the operator. And so we we are constantly engaging with all three of those bodies, particularly in terms of distributed energy resources, the DER space, um, and demand management, energy efficiency. Uh, as you mentioned, that 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 cloud-based solution that was one that we engaged very closely with AEMO on. So it's, I, I think, you know, all, all I would suggest him is just, you know, keep keep an eye on what's going on in our website. We, we, we in fact, I, I just, I had a meeting this morning with um, our entire business development and transactions team based in our Sydney office. And I was shown a Gantt chart of the next 12 to 24 months as to the, which sets out the, the the range of both competitive and open funding rounds that we're looking to to initiate, and quite frankly, it's overwhelming. So there's there's a lot coming up in the in the pipeline. So um, yeah, you know, stay stay, stay tuned. <laughs> we love a good A3 Gantt chart, but it sounds like you might be more in A2 A1 territory. <laughs> Far beyond my capability, Tim. <laughs> well, now is the time, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, arena launch that um, piqued my interest recently was the $50 million towards the Regional Australia Microgrid Pilots Program. Um, really exciting opportunity for regional communities to integrate renewables, um, and obviously that resonates for me given the tyranny of distance that is Western Australia. Um, the program ties together the E and the S of ESG um, and is interesting from that perspective. So could you tell us a bit about the social benefits the pilot is intending to target um, because I, I presume the environmental benefits are self-explanatory? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's right. Thanks, Mel. Um, so, yeah, I think microgrids are an interesting one and, and um, whenever someone asks me about microgrids, I, I like to sort of, yeah, I think it's important just to go back to make sure we're all on the same page as to what a microgrid is, because I think it's it does sort of generate a degree of confusion. Um, so when we look at microgrids, and, and you're right, we've we've got a, a funding round that's literally about to kick off in in this space. So we look at 
you know, any sort of electricity supply arrangement that can operate in what we call island mode. So, you know, completely physically separated from the grid, but the microgrid itself can still operate. So that's that's one attribute um, that, you know, or you could come up with an electricity supply arrangement that is connected now and then gets, um, you know, disconnected or transitions to a, um, a completely isolated supply arrangement. So that could also be a microgrid. Um, or, you know, you could have a connected supply system now that is already, uh, that then transitions to an isolated grid and then continues to operate um, as an isolated grid. So, you know, all of that suggests that the, you know, the, the community or the people that are relying on that grid, they are very disconnected. Uh, they're in a remote, isolated community. They might either have a fringe of grid connection or, or no connection at all. Um, or, you know, and they may well be suffering from um, things like very expensive expensive diesel, which is being trucked in. Um, you know, remote mining sites, for example, we, we treat them sometimes as, as, um, as, as effectively as microgrids because, you know, when you're running a very large, and you'd know this um, better than I would, Mel, but when you're running a very large mining site in some of the remote areas in WA, such as up in the Pilbara, you you know, you effectively need a microgrid type solution to run the entire mining operations over very large area, very large areas. So, you know, we, we've we've worked in the in in the space of supporting a number of mining operations um, get off expensive diesel and onto cheaper renewables for a long time now. Uh, but what we want to try and do is roll that out more into, you know, this generic microgrid space right across Australia, uh, and not just for mining sites. So yeah, look, we 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 haven't launched it yet. We 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 haven't even issued the um, the the expression of interest is still in the works. But we think that we we should receive a lot of interest in this space because let's face it, in Australia, there's a lot of very remote and poorly connected communities that that would benefit from this sort of you know energy solution. Well, we look forward to seeing the AOI. Yes, indeed. Cameron, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Um, it's been fascinating and, and um, sounds like a really busy and exciting period for Arena Ahead. Um, now, to pivot, Tim, we've done fun facts and myth-busting to close up the pod, but I thought today we'd finish with a little awareness raising. All eyes in our family on Glasgow and the UN Climate Change Conference that will run from 31 October through the first part of November. So ESG can feel, does feel a little climate centric at the moment, but COP26 is not the only big event in November. Just after COP from the 15th to the 17th of November is the Australian Reconciliation Convention. It's going to be the first reconciliation focused convention in Australia in 20 years. Um, it's been held online to facilitate inclusivity and national participation, and it aims to bring together Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous Australians to reflect on reconciliation, uh, but also move the dialogue further from safe to brave. So do check out the program on the Reconciliation Australia website and participate if you can. That's a wrap. Tim, thanks again to Cameron Kelly joining us today from Arena as our expert third wheel. 
And I hope you'll join us for our next episode where I think it's safe to say we will be leaning into the climate-centric focus of ESG and COP26 a little further. Um, But from Tim and I, bye for now, ESGers. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.